Hello and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Harry. We're coming to the end of Season 10 where we're looking at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And for Episode 98, we will be looking at the highly anticipated, web-swinging, friendly neighbourhood crime fighter, the 2017 action comedy Spider-Man Homecoming, which introduces our first look at our new and third live-action Spider-Man. Based on the comics by Stan Lee and directed by John Watts, the film stars Tom Holland as the title character, along with Zendania, Robert Downey Jr., Michael Keaton, John Favreau, Marissa Tomei and Jacob Batalon. Spider-Man, probably one of the most popular superheroes to hit our screens, and Marvel had really held their ground on Spider-Man for some time before introducing us to Tom Holland nine years after the first MCU movie came out back in 2008 where Iron Man was introduced. Can you remember the hype, though, if you're old enough to remember the noise when Sam Raimi's Spider-Man came out back in 2002-2001? It was nothing we had seen before. The first proper superhero movie with updated special effects at the helm and the classic trilogy that sucked us into the world that was led by Tobey Maguire. That was our first sort of taste of superhero hitting our screens, and we loved it. Yes, we had Burton's and Schumacher's Batman, but the Marvel Universe offered a more vibrant and family-friendly approach to making these movies. Blockbuster instead of dark dramas, family instead of adult. Fun more than edge of your seat, the clear difference between DC and Marvel. What Spider-Man Homecoming somehow did, even after Maguire's trilogy and Garfield's double reboot, was make you forget that this is the third different Spider-Man and the second reboot of the Web Slinger. And this is the second reboot in less than 20 years. It was a completely new take on Spider-Man, and more importantly, Peter Parker, pushing him down a few numbers to hit that certain demographic from adults to teenagers. Tom Holland basically stole the show in Civil War, where he made his first appearance, a film that also... Introduces Black Panther, Ant-Man for a second time, Wanda, Vision, Zemo, and of course Bucky Barnes as the Winter Soldier again. So not that I need telling, but Spider-Man was a very successful comic. Came out in 1962 thanks to Stan Lee and Steve Ditke. First appeared in the issues Amazing Fantasy, hence why the adjective amazing stuck with the term Spider-Man. I say term, the superhero. And as we all know, Peter Parker, one of the many alternative or alliterative names in the comic book world, is his alias and raised by his Aunt May and Uncle Ben after his parents, Richard and Mary Parker, died in a plane crash. Not many people knew that bit. The main reason this comic was so successful was because this superhero was a kid and was dealing with real problems, and that main demographic could relate. Adolescents, financial issues, getting the girl, high school stuff. Back in those days, teenagers were usually sidekicks in the comics, kind of like Robin, Bucky, or Catwoman. But this was one of the first times a teenager character was the main protagonist. So shockingly, Tom Holland is the first actor to be a teenager at the time of playing Spider-Man, which is probably why he's so popular with the fans. Tobey Maguire was 25 during the first Spider-Man, and Andrew Garfield, can you guess how old he was? He was 26, so that makes him the oldest playing Spider-Man in the last 20 years. In fact, ever, to be honest, because most of the other Spider-Mans that do voices or did the cartoons were in their teens as well. But Tom Holland becoming the first at 19 years old. As fate would have it, just four years prior to the release of this movie, Tom Holland did an interview to promote his upcoming film at the time, How I Live Now, and was asked by a reporter what kind of role he might want to try next. Tom Tom Holland, no word of a lie, and you can find us on YouTube, said, a project with action and humour would be of interest to me, you think? The reporter then asked if he would ever like to play a superhero, and he answered, maybe Spider-Man in 10 years, the reboot of the reboot, if they ever tried that. 
He only had to wait three years to be casted as the official third live-action Spider-Man. The casting process was a close call. It came down to a few names like Asa Butterfield, Nat Wolfe, Liam James, and Timothy Chalamet. Asa Butterfield, also British, who you may know from Sex Education, or Hugo from the runner-up, was the, uh, you know, it was almost casted as the role for Spider-Man. The runner-up was down to a few tests. One of them was a screen test with Chris Evans and Robbie Downey Jr. to see the kind of chemistry, uh, chemistry they had with each other. I think they eventually declined Asa Butterfield because he was deemed too tall for the role. I think standing the same height as Chris Evans. One of the main and primary reasons besides the chemistry with the others on why Tom Holland got the role is because he had a background in dancing and gymnastics, which of course are pivotal for the role of Spider-Man. I think during one of his audition tapes, he just did a backflip out of randomness. So the movie actually marks the eighth time that Robbie Downey Jr. is playing Tony Stark and also the first time in a Spider-Man movie, which will also include another superhero movie or character. This is also the first film out of the three, not to mention or to feature Uncle Ben in any way. He is mentioned, I think, actually in the movie, but that that's it. He's not, he's not in the movie at all. This is also the first film where Flash Thompson is not a burly jock like he is in the comics and the other two films. This character is updated to a wealthy, smug character to fit the sort of modern portrayal of bullies at the time. And this film also marks the first time we do not have an origin story on how Peter became Spider-Man. In this version, he's just already Spider-Man and we just go along with it. Also, the first Spider-Man movie where the Osborne family company, Oscorp, doesn't not appear anywhere or play any role in the movie whatsoever. This movie also continues the trend of first with John Favreau playing Happy Hogan for the first time. That isn't an Iron Man movie, which is also quite a like pass in the buck kind of thing. It's also the first Spider-Man movie not to have a video game tie-in with it. And it's also one of the first Spider-Man movies which manages to somehow show all of New York City's five boroughs in there too. Now, there are mentioned or shown in this movie, which is a nice little touch because New York City is the playground of Spider-Man. And it's what you associate with this certain character like you do with four with Asgard. In case you wanted to know, the five boroughs of New York are Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Staten Island, had to think about that, and the Bronx. So, to get prepped for the role, I read Tom Holland attended a high school in Upper New York for a few weeks to get a feel of Peter Parker and the life in high school. He used his acting coach's name, and John Watts, the director, made Tom Holland and the rest of the teenage actors to watch a marathon of John Hughes' movie, which was insane. But hey, that's uh, how John Watts is with his directing, if you've ever watched any of his films. Now, Ferris Bueller Day Out is one of my all-time favourite films, let alone John Hughes' films. The director does a nice little reference to it in the movie. In fact, when Spider-Man is chasing Toombs' men in the white van, and Spider-Man goes through a pool party, and Ferris Bueller is actually on the screen right there. And not only that, but the entire running sequence is a nod to the scene at the end of Ferris Bueller when he's running home. I'm sure the director has said to Tom Holland to add in the line, good movie, during that scene. It certainly is a good movie, and I've done a podcast on it. So have a listen to that. So the director said that the film is a coming-of-age movie. Take nothing away. Yes, he's Spider-Man, but he is also a teenager. Apparently, they all went to Tom's house in Atlanta and watched them all in one day and just had dominoes. My favourite is Ferris Bueller out of all of them. You've got Pretty in Pink. You've got The Breakfast Club. There are just so many great films done by John Hughes. So a cool little thing they do in this movie that you may not have even noticed, but like in Charlie's Angels, you know, the three girls have great skills at fighting crime. None of them touches a gun in the movies. 
Um, and they kind of do a similar thing with Spider-Man just because they're against guns. So they said, well, let's not have any of the angels touch a gun. Well, in Spider-Man, he never throws a punch to any of the villains or anyone in this movie, which is actually quite an interesting thing. He always uses his web or counter his enemies' punches so they punch themselves or someone else, which is actually kind of cool. He does kick, however, but yeah, never punches. So if you watch the film again, you'll realize he never punches anyone, which is really odd for a superhero. So he certainly makes up for that in No Way Home, if you've seen it yet, when he is pummeling Green Goblin over and over again. Sorry, spoiler alert there, but I'm sure most people have seen No Way Home, considering the box office figures at the moment. However, for this movie, Homecoming, where the title, of course, is referring to the homecoming party for the kids at the end of the movie. But this is also a nod to the inclusion of the Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But yeah, which is this movie we have... The main antagonist is the Vulture taking the realms, played by the rising star for a second time, Michael Keaton. This film was just more confirmation that Michael Keaton had revived his career after playing Birdman, a character that parodies his role as Batman. A lot of bird references to his main role, even though Bat is a mammal, not a bird. But they got wings, and to carry on that tradition, here is another character where he has a bird-like character called the Vulture. Not sure if this is a coincidence or if his agent just likes him playing bird characters, but... The first main villain in all three Spider-Mans to have a costume suit or skin that is green. In fact, if you look at all of the other villains in the movie, all the first villains in the Spider-Man movie, they all have association with the color green. The vulture suit in this is green. Goblin, of course, is green. And the lizard in Garfield's movie has green skin. Interestingly, the vulture is never referred to as the vulture in this movie, just that vulture guy. Also, despite being the main villain in this movie, the Vulture never really intentionally attempts to harm any innocent people, only people who directly confronts him, which acts as an interesting plot element, especially when we find out that he is the father of the girl that he has taken to homecoming. Spoiler alert. I think he dropped out of Cars 3, Michael Keaton, that is, to have a role in this movie. Quite the voice actor, too. He had just done the voice of Ken in Toy Story 3. So he said the only research he had to do for this role was talk to his daughter's kids who knew the character from the comics, which is quite cute. So there is a scene in this movie where the vulture appears in front of the moon briefly and spreads his wings, much like he does with Batman in the 1989 movie. Michael Keaton went on just to describe the character of Aiden Toombs as a resentful villain, and I think he's an amazing addition to this movie. He honestly is one of my favourite actors, and this confirmed his sort of rise to fame being in an MCU movie, which is one of the biggest things to be in right now. I don't think many actors haven't done it yet. So there's a nice little scene in the movie where Toombs is driving uh, them to homecoming and he's starting to clock onto the fact that Peter is Spider-Man. And it's during the car when it stopped at the traffic lights and it mirrors the thought process of Toombs. As soon as the light goes green, he figures it out. He sees himself as a victim and he probably has a reason to play that card too and you can't really blame him. You instantly like him and that's an interesting arc to have for a villain in this film, especially when we find out he's the father of the person he's taken to homecoming. A nice little twist of the movie. He is actually the main, I think he's actually the only person in the main cast to have been born before the Spider-Man comics debuted, which was in 1962. Another thing you have to love about villains is that when you decide to be good, and this is exactly what Toombs does to protect his daughter when he finds out that Peter is Spider-Man, it interestingly makes the audience goes on his side. You sort of sympathize with the villain, and that's a really good thing to do in movies. And that hasn't really been done in MCU yet. Back when they were considering the fourth Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie, the Vulture would have been the main villain, and John Malkovich was set to play him, but they rebooted the film five years later with 
Andrew Garfield. So we chatted about Michael Keaton, so we should take a look at the other side of the spectrum on some debut performances. This was actually Disney star Zendaya's first feature film role. Because of the popularity she brings, she's now killing it with films like Greatest Showman, Malcolm & Marie, the TV series Euphoria, and more recently, June. Of course, the other big reveal in this movie is that she prefers to be called MJ to Michelle with the director's choice of misdirection on her name. So we find out she's a very pivotal part in this film. We also have the introduction of Jacob Batalan, who plays Ned Leeds, the man in the chair, as he puts it. In the comics, he's reportedly um, a reporter at the Daily Bugle, not a friend or classmate of Peter, but they changed that in the script, which is quite interesting. So Spider-Man Homecoming became the fourth highest Spider-Man movie to date. Domestically, the second highest gross after worldwide box office hit Spider-Man 3, which is kind of my favorite, but everyone hates it. But there you go. The film becomes the second reboot of the Spider-Man franchise and the 16th film of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's Chapter 4 of Phase 3. It's also the first MCU movie since Captain America First Avengers to be distributed by a company other than Disney. So the budget for this film was a whopping $175 million and it grossed over $880 million domestically, which is huge. And yet, it's still the second highest gross in Spider-Man since... My favourite, Spider-Man 3, because that film just smashed it out of the park. Well, I guess third now, since No Way Home has crossed a billion, but there you go. So we have three Spider-Man movies now. Each film offers different mentors for Spider-Man. Stark for this one, Fury for the second movie, and Doctor Strange for the third one. And this subplot of this father-son mentor-student thing is key to the story of Spider-Man, since he is a 19-year-old kid. And he's got huge responsibilities outside of being a superhero. Happy Hogan acts as one throughout too, which makes the last scene in No Way Home heartbreaking if you haven't already seen it. We have to remember, among the MCU movies, we have superheroes among superheroes. We've got gods, we have monsters, we have hybrids, robots, you name it. And amongst them, we have this teenager that Starks bring in and he feels responsible for him before, you know, because of Civil War. It was simply a crime-fighting neighborhood Spider-Man that just kept his crime-fighting skills in the New York area and, more importantly, the five boroughs, which is mentioned or seen in this movie, like I've mentioned before. But now, after Tony dies, the buck keeps getting passed on, and now he eventually becomes totally alone at the end of this trilogy that they've done for Spider-Man. It's a popular relationship, the one between Tony and Peter, or even Doctor Strange and Peter. It's just an interesting arc to have someone look over him, since Uncle Ben's not even mentioned in this movie. Now, Spider-Man goes through a lot of deaths, and the stories are about how he manages to balance his adolescence whilst also fighting crime and, of course, dealing with personal loss. And this is the story that makes Spider-Man so popular. Kids go through a lot of the same things, and sometimes adult or adults can't relate. And with Spider-Man, you get a sort of new perspective from a hero that you wouldn't from, like, say, Tony Stark or Banner or Thor or even Cap. Saying that, though, this is the first Spider-Man movie that doesn't have a major death in it, which emphasizes how death is a regular theme in the Spider-Man universe. Yeah, this movie doesn't have one of those classic graveyard scenes like the others do. First, Spider-Man had Norman die. Spider-Man 2 had Uncle Ben. Spider-Man 3 had Harry die. The Amazing Spider-Man, it's Captain Stacy. The second one is Gwen. By the way, massive spoiler alert if you haven't seen any of those five. But they fully compensate that later on in the third Tom Holland movie, where not only does Aunt May die for the first time, but everyone forgets who he is. He is completely alone. Yeah, I have done a lot of spoilers today. 
One of the themes of this movie, and sometimes the earlier ones as well, which goes line in line with the rebellious teenager stereotype in reverse, is this theme of lack of interest or respect from the adults that are present in his life. Now, Peter is repeatedly dismissive as a nuisance by Happy Hogan. Tony, even though he thinks Peter has potential, dismisses everything Peter says. He even says, below my pay grade, when he tries to tell him something unimportant or important. I mean, even Doctor Strange doesn't take him seriously when he's trying to do good in the third movie. Turns out, you know, it, it shows shows that classic story between what the kid don't believe anything the kid says or just don't listen to the kid or the, the lack of respect and that's why he's so popular because the demographic for the marvel films are going down to like 12 years old so even the names of the protocols are a hint to how everyone sees spider-man training wheels and baby monitor i mean that could just be part of sort of banter from tony stark which it kind of is but at the same time it doesn't show or shadow the fact that he is a kid and that's how they see him the teachers at Peter's school are quite dismissive to the other students. One teacher hears a massive loud bang and doesn't even react to it. I mean, there is a clear message to this transition of generations from 2008 when Iron Man first started to this new age of millennials. I mean, the tendency of the older generation to dismiss the opinions and values of younger generation as unimportant and trivial due to their apparent Im immaturity. Some may call it ageism or some may call it this generation clash. And Marvel have showcased it in this movie. And at the same time, it does set up nicely this new age of superheroes that we're going to see now that Iron Man, Captain America, Black Widow and others have gone. And it's, it definitely sparks a really interesting thing on what's to come next, especially after the Tom Holland No Way Home film just came out. And I think Spider-Man is a fantastic addition and it was a much needed addition to the Marvel Universe. Anyway, that's all I have time for with Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, well, not No Way Home, <laughs> Homecoming. No Way Home, you should go see it if you haven't seen it, but Homecoming, the first introduction of Spider-Man in his solo movie. It's a solid introduction to the second reboot of this beloved character, apparently on a global scale, looking at the box office numbers, and a pivotal member of the future of the MCU films. Anyway, please subscribe to me on Google, Amazon Play, Spotify, and iTunes, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. That's Film Exploration AH, all lowercase, all one word. But right now, thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.